Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Welcome to the Simply Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Hassoun. In this podcast, I'll be looking at three key questions related to fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I will break these down into information that is easy to understand and actionable so that you can apply it to your life today. This podcast will give you all you need to improve your health and well-being once and for all. So sit back, listen, and most importantly, take action. So first question today and one that I really enjoy answering. Elliot, how do I manage going out on dates when I'm dieting? And as you can imagine, this question comes up a fair amount. A lot of people start their journeys for aesthetic reasons, you know, they might want to get back out on the dating scene again. Maybe they've just broken up and they haven't been on dates in a long time. So, you know, that's the thing that's coming next. And they're wondering how they're going to manage their health and fitness journey whilst going out and getting back out there again, which was, you know, could have been the reason they actually begun the journey in the first place. And today I don't really want to talk about strategies per se. I will go through that at the end, but I want to talk about, you know, doing extra cardio, pulling back calories. I want to talk about a universal principle that I would use, but I want to first start with the reason that you're dating in the first place. So if this is just a casual, short term, you know, you're not really looking for anything serious, and let's say you want to stay and eat in accordance to your plan. So you tell the girl, the guy, that you're not drinking because you it doesn't currently align with your health and fitness choices. Let's say you're early stages and you want to maintain momentum and those good habits. At the end of the day, if it's short term, if it's casual, then you should genuinely not care about the opinion of the person. Especially if there's someone you've just met, especially if it's not someone you're considering to spend a long time with, if they don't respect that initially, then black and white, it should not matter whatsoever. And now I want to look at things from a long-term perspective, because this is where it becomes even more important. And I appreciate you may not be thinking about this person being a long-term partner on your first date. However, you might be. And something that I want to strip it back to here is take away the fact that it's about your health and fitness. If you are going to partner with someone for a long-term 
<laughs> I'm just realizing this is turning into a relationship podcast, which I don't want this to be. But if you are going to have a long-term partner, then you should share similar beliefs and values, or at least values. You should be able to align on some core principles that you guys have, because if, if you don't, then you may have differences of opinion, which is absolutely fine. But if you have a difference in values, then that's not going to be a solid foundation to build a long-term relationship on, especially when it comes to bringing up your children. So it's important that you align with the same values. So if you come up to a date with a guy or girl and you tell them, I'm not drinking because I've made this commitment to my health and fitness. I really care about it. I've invested my time, energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't respect that choice. They make fun of you for not drinking. They tell you you're boring. They say live a little. If they don't respect your choice then, that would put a bit of a red flag in my mind whether they're a good long-term partner or not. If they can't respect your choice now, then it's going to be very, very hard to embed that choice, especially if you are someone who's serious about your health and fitness and you want to embed this into your lifestyle for the long term. So if you are you know, serious about your dating, you're serious about your long-term health, then think about it this way. When you're raising your children in the future, I'm sure you would want to raise them with good health and fitness habits. And if that individual doesn't respect your health and fitness habits at their, that time, it's going to be very hard to A, maintain those, and B, also raise a family where that is at the fundamental of who you are as a family. And then that's where I come back to values as well. So it's super, super important that if you're on early stages of dating and you have clearly communicated to an individual, and this does come back to the person who's going out on the date, so you do have to clearly communicate with them that this is important to you for X reason. If they still can't come to terms with that, in the early stages, then that was probably not the person to continue dating live. If it's casual, if it's fun, then by all means do it. But if you are planning to build something long-term, then you want someone who respects that commitment to your health and your goals. And this is where it comes away from uh, the health and fitness side of things. Let's say that you were in a sport or you were a musician. Uh, let's say you, you, know, you didn't want to drink because you had a concert the next night because you're a musician. And this person was saying, no, you can have a drink, you know, you'll be fine and all that. It doesn't matter about the health and fitness side of things. It's the fact that they're not respecting your commitment, respecting your love for your profession, your professionalism, and what you have passion for. And especially when it comes down to health and that personally being a very big value of mine, if someone was along the lines of that and I was dating with them, that would just be a conflict of interest for me personally, because it's not just about the health, but it's about not having respect for that commitment as well. And for me, that might just not be a good thing to build a long-term relationship on. As fun as and enjoyable and maybe as attractive as this person is, that would be a red flag for me. So that is usually my thought process on that. And of course, let's go into a few strategies here. And don't get me wrong, in the early stages, you might want to go out for pizza. You know, let's say they innocently take you out. 
um, to a pizza making class or something along those lines. You don't want to say, oh, you know, or a cocktail making class and you don't want to be like, oh, no, I can't drink this because if it's not on my plan. You know, there will be times where you want to spontaneously do these things. So you don't have to be super, super particular. You know, there's always things you can do after the fact to recover the calories, etc. if you need to. And then you can plan a little bit more accordingly in future. So you could pick the restaurant or pick the event. You know, potentially it's not a cocktail making class, but it's a sushi making class, a ceviche making class. Uh, I walked past a ceviche workshop earlier today and that's why it's in my mind. Maybe you want to review the menu beforehand. If you're going, if you're a bit of a serial dater and you're going on regular dates, maybe you take these people or the people you're dating to the same place every time where you know there's an option on the menu that you enjoy and you know that aligns with your health, long-term health and wellness goals and you set the calories aside and you don't even have to think about that. So that's a really good way of getting around it from a strategy perspective as well. But you know, <laughs> what's pretty funny here is that I almost struggle to understand where someone would think that eating chicken wings and pizza on a first or second date might be a good idea anyway. You know, stick with the safe options. That's all the knife and fork options. <laughs> you know, drinking a beer doesn't make you more attractive. Drinking alcohol drink, alcoholic drink if you're a female does not make you more attractive or any more appealing to the opposite person. And if it does, then question the values. And that is my answer to the very first question, which is essentially quite a long-winded way of saying you shouldn't care what they think, you should care ultimately what you think. So moving on, and we're going to go into a question on steps next. Uh, steps get a lot of attention, and I get a lot of questions about this too, which is why are steps so important, and actually are they even important? And it's safe to say that potentially, I don't know, maybe... 60, 70, maybe 80 years ago, steps probably really, you know, wouldn't have been part of a health and fitness plan if health and fitness plans were something back then, due to the fact that we walked so much and we were fairly active. A lot more of us had labor-based jobs. A lot of us weren't so sedentary, set behind, you know, sat at desks, sat at computers, etc., that just didn't happen maybe 70, 80 years ago. And just to give you some context here, I thought this would be a really interesting thing, to, a fact to bring up here. So I had a look and it was a study done on motor vehicle usage in the 1960s comparatively to 2010, which is of course around 10 years ago. So we can anticipate that things have even progressed more since then. So in the 1960s, out of 1,000 US people in the US, 410 of those had a motor vehicle, so a motorcycle, a car, a lorry, a bus maybe, and then they compared that to 2010, and out of those 1,000 people in the US, 810 of those had a motor vehicle, so it essentially doubled in 50 years, and now you can see, you know, and obviously if people are have possession of motor vehicles, they're doing a lot less moving. And then if we look at things like public transportation being more frequent accessible, getting an Uber, getting a taxi is more easy than ever. 
then obviously steps have now become really important. They have to, they become something that we have to consciously do versus before when we very unconsciously did them. And now I want to talk to you about how they become factored into a health and fitness plan. So I've also thought it'd be really interested to, interesting to give you the context behind the 10,000 steps um, because we all know it, right? It's like the baseline of the amount of steps that you would do. Maybe even your Fitbit automatically sets you at that. But actually, what I <laughs> found interesting and what I'm sure you'll find interesting is a doctor called Dr. Lee uh, discovered that the origin of the number goes back to 1965 when a Japanese company made a device called Manpoke. Please forgive me if that's not the pronunciation, which translates to the 10,000 steps meter. And the name was simply a marketing tool, she says. So there was nothing scientific about the number 10,000. It was just simply a marketing strategy. And it's kind of funny when it comes back to things like breakfast being the most important meal of the day and all of those other things that we kind of get embedded into culture, but they're actually myths. And you actually have to look behind, you know, the actual where that came from to realize that there's actually no relevance or actual science or practicality to it whatsoever. So 10,000, doing 10,000 steps is not a bad thing whatsoever. But as I mentioned, there is no specific uh, science to it whatsoever. And let's just look at it this way. If you're someone who was already doing, you know, potentially you're doing two to 3,000, which before I would have said is incredibly low, but since working from home and having more of a desk-based job, I can see how that happens. You know, there are some days where I'm glued to my laptop as well. And, you know, I just do a little bit of movement around my house. And sometimes it's just 1,000, 2,000, especially if you're in just like a one or two bedroom apartment home, you're probably not going to do that many steps. So 10,000 may seem quite out of reach. And I'm going to come back to my personal recommendations in just a second. But I also want to talk about why steps in particular compared to cardio or anything like that. So when we look at doing 1,000 steps, roughly, very, very roughly, this is all going to be dependent on your body weight as well. Let's say we burn 40 calories, okay? And let's say we do 5,000 steps, right? Which is two, two and a half miles, which isn't too bad at all. And then that brings us to 200 calories per day. Right, so let's look at someone right now who's maybe doing that thousand, like I just referred to them, versus someone who's doing five thousand. So that's two hundred calories per day across the course of a week. That's what fourteen hundred calories a week. And if we look at that over the course of a a month, maybe that's roughly you know five high five thousands to six thousand calories per month. And we, if we look at that over the course of a year, then we're looking at seventy two thousand calories across a year. That's based on 5,000 steps. And let's ramp that up to 10,000. That's almost 145 to 150,000 calories being expended per year. So that's where, you know, that's where steps are pretty significant. Like really, really can make a difference in someone's A, short-term progress when it comes to their weight loss journey, but B, the long-term management of their body weight as well. And that's the crucial part here. You know, when it comes to maintaining your results long-term, if you're burning between 200 and 400 calories extra per day from just walking, 
that's going to be a lot easier to maintain your weight long term than if you were just doing, you know, a thousand to two thousand, which is going to get you eighty calories, right? And if you think about it, when most people are overeating, that's pretty much the amount they're overeating by per day. It's not that they're eating light years over their calorie amount, but it's just three, four hundred calories or so. So that you know, five to 10,000 steps may be the difference between you maintaining your weight or you slowly gaining weight. So I thought that was really fascinating when you break down the numbers like that. And now I want to talk about why, you know, steps are prescribed so much by us health and fitness professionals. And first thing is they are incredibly easy. You know, they're not very taxing. If you are a healthy, you know, and even if you're on, you know, the latter end of not being so healthy, the majority of us all being well, we have good use of our legs and good mobility within our knees and ankles, we can walk. So it's so accessible. It's easy. It's not taxing. And pretty much everyone can and should do it as long as they can. So that's the number one reason why it's prescribed. And number two, I want to compare this to something like cardio because a lot of people say you know can i just do my steps in the form of going for a run and yes you could but now i want you to compare the two right so if we look at 10,000 steps being roughly five miles um six to seven kilometers let's look at the difference between you getting that just by going out and about in your day versus doing like a five to seven k run if you come back from that run or if you did that run every single day at some point, you'd have to take a bit of a rest from that. You know, there's demand on your body that it will need recovery. You know, I don't know how you feel after a five slash seven K. It doesn't matter how, what pace you do it. Because if, if you're going to go for a run, then it's going to be at a decent pace. And you're going to feel it. You know, you come back, you, you're fairly breathless, you're sweaty. You probably want to go have a shower. And then the next day, you might be a little bit sore. If you did that and pounded your body with doing that every day and every day and every day, if you didn't put some serious recovery um, strategies in place, at some point, you would really, really, you'd A, be very sore. You'd probably not really enjoy doing it. And it just it isn't a long-term sustainable thing to do, especially when it comes to if you are weight training as well, it's going to impact performance. Whereas when we look at 10,000 steps of walking, because it's low impact, because it's broken down into different parts of the day and we're not doing it all in one chunk in a form of a run, we don't really have to recover from it. If you're new to doing steps, then you may. But after time, your body comes to adapt quite quickly and it's unlikely to affect any of your, of, you know, any performance either. And let's put it this way. If you're going to go for a run every day, you have to, you know, set aside time to go run, shower, and you kind of mentally prep yourself for that run. When it comes to walking, you don't have to mentally psych yourself up. That's where walking is going to be far more favorable than running. So I want to give you the takeaway just to wrap up here. And especially if you're very new to this and you're thinking, I barely get 4,000 steps a day. I barely get 3,000 steps a day. If you're hitting that amount, then maybe just doubling that is going to be sufficient. So if you're doing three, 6,000 is going to be a big jump. In fact, it's going to be double the steps that you do. So it's going to be very significant. That's where you're going to build from there. You know, it's not about jumping from 2,000 to 10,000. It's going from two to four, or maybe even setting yourself a little bit more of a goal, saying four to 6K per week, and then building up gradually from there. The second thing I'd say as well is that I always do encourage people to be active on a day-to-day -day basis, 
But I appreciate that a lot of us, we are very, very busy from Monday to Friday. We have obligations, we have work, we have school, we have kids, we have life, we have all of these type of things. But when it comes to the weekends, we've got a little bit more leisure time. So if you are someone who can only afford to do maybe five, six K on the weekdays, then utilize your weekends. Go for long walks, go for 10, 12, 15,000 and bump up your weekly average because it's all going to make a difference. A, for your short-term weight loss goals, but also for your long-term weight management too. So I think that wraps up that question nicely. And without any interruption, we're going to dive straight into the third, which is a little bit more topical. So Elliot, what is your opinion on the 800 calorie soup slash uh, shake diet? And this one was very, you know, got a lot of attention in the news recently, a lot of, um, leaders in the fitness industry and a lot of health and fitness experts weighed in on this and gave their opinion and I thought it'd be worth sharing mine but also looking at both sides of the coin first like why has this even come about you know if, if everyone's shouting and screaming why it's such a bad idea why are they going ahead of it so I wanted to explore this first so they did a study and this is what it's all based around the study reported that in just four weeks all of the volunteers I'm not sure how many there was they lost between 13 pounds and 24 pounds which is you know roughly a stone two stone for you guys who work in stones and roughly six to twelve kilos for us who work in kilos and going on from there they lost even more weight they don't give the exact figures but they lost more weight in the following weeks and what's more is all of the volunteers seriously reduced their liver fat glucose levels, and they were put back into a normal and healthy range. So, you know, on paper, that sounds fantastic. And let's look at the people who are actually impacted here, right? We've got severely overweight people, and we've got GPs, right? So if you are a GP who is seeing X amount of people per day, and pre-COVID, we know how hard it is to get a doctor's appointment. And if you are going to get a doctor's appointment pre-COVID, then they're probably going to be delayed. The doctor is seeing, I don't know how many patients doctors see in a day, but I guess they work on maybe 10 to 20 minute consultations on an eight hour day. So maybe they see between 30 and 40 patients. This is just me roughly estimating here because they always seem to be fully booked. If you're a GP and the majority of the people you are seeing have issues stemming from the fact that they their patients are overweight then that's a very very appealing you know appealing um, offer for them you know they are getting the opportunity to not have to prescribe so much diabetic medication they have the opportunity not to prescribe so much blood pressure medication they don't have to see these people frequently because of they're losing weight doing this soup and shake diet so if you're a gp who is seeing that many people then you know, happy days. I would probably be the same and go along with that. And if you are an overweight person and you don't have the confidence, you, you, you don't know where to go, you're not sure where to go in terms of losing weight, then that also seems really appealing as well, right? You're literally, someone's telling you, okay, all you need to do is drink these, you know, eat these soups, drink these shakes, and I think you can have a 200 calorie uh, protein addition to this day as well, so it might make up 1,000 calories, then you will drop this amount of weight in a very, very short amount of time, one month. And, you know, if you come to me and you talk to me from a health, uh, you know, a, a fitness professional, and you tell me you've got 12 kilos to lose, 
and you tell me that you're a 70 kilo individual, let's say, I'm going to say, okay, we're probably going to roughly aim for the 1% of body weight per week mark. Um, and your journey is going to look like anything from, you know, realistically from four to six months. So if they come to me and they're told that realistically, and it's going to require all this effort, I'm going to, you know, transform your nutrition. I'm going to put a training program in place. You're going to be doing steps. Uh, I want you to pay attention to your hydration, sleep. And then on the other hand, there's got, you know, someone who's, again, medically qualified telling them, okay, all you need to do is drink this uh, soup, uh, sorry, drink this shake, eat the soup, and there you go. I'm pretty sure I know which one's more appealing. I know, don't get me wrong, the, the idea of drinking those shakes and losing that weight sounds way more appealing to me, you know, than what I just suggested. So that's where you got to bear in mind, the two people who are mainly being impacted by this, it's very appealing to them. Um, and maybe could you argue that the health benefits that they gain are worth it as well? You know, these people are, as proved, they are, their blood pressure is coming down, reducing their liver fat, their glucose levels are going down. So they have the capacity to be more healthy in the moment. So could you argue that it's worth it? Um, so that's A, that side of the coin. And I just wanted to give this context here as well, because I did some digging um, into how much research, you know, how much time GPs actually spend on nutrition uh, when they are getting qualified. And I don't want to make any bold statements here, but when I did the research, it wasn't very long and maybe did 10 to 15, 20 minutes of scrolling. I found answers from anywhere between one hour to 25 hours of nutrition education within their qualifications of becoming a, a GP or um, a medical physician. So that's just a little caveat there as well and something to consider anytime that you're getting nutritional education or information from your GP. So now I want to look at it from you know most of the fitness industry's perspective and mine as well. And we've just got to look at in just four weeks. Great. Four weeks, you know, great eight weeks, great 12 weeks. But what about the next one, five, 10, 15 years that are going to come after that? How can you base a big prescription like this off just weeks of data? Yes, it's solving something in the short term. But in my eyes, you are just pushing back the inevitable, you know. And this is where I'm going to come in and say that long-term weight management and long-term success when it comes to what I've experienced with my years in the industry with my clients, it comes from habit formation. It comes from long-term lifestyle changes. And to a degree, it comes from identity change as well. So if they don't change their habits and behaviors and implement those and embed them within their routines, you can rest assured that these people are going to end up back at square one in some time right? So, okay, you might ease the burden off the NHS for so many, maybe a year, you know, maybe a year or two years, maybe in three years if you're lucky. Um, actually, I, I want to give another point, uh, but I won't go back there just yet. But maybe you'll ease off the burden for that period of time, which might help with the current COVID situation. But eventually, those people are going to come back with the same conditions. And, the challenge that people come into and the trap that happens here is that it's the same as something like Weight Watchers. And I get that people, a lot of people do have 
a fair amount of success on Weight Watchers. What happens? They go on Weight Watchers, they lose a bunch of weight, um, and then, you know, that that's great. They stop doing Weight Watchers, they regain that weight, and then they're like, oh, Weight Watchers worked really well. Let me go back and do that again. That's not the point. <laughs> that's not the idea. Because of what a, you know, what a coach, like, for instance, myself and the company EHC, what we're all about is making sure that you get your result but you are able to maintain it for the long term. I want to coach you so damn well that you never need me again. You're only around because you enjoy the coaching, not because you need uh, to be coached anymore, because you have the tools, you are equipped with what you need to maintain this long term. And that's not what a lot of these people and a lot of the industry is doing. And I feel like that's the direction that a lot of fitness professionals in, in my scope and in my world are going to be turning the direction of. But what is the point in just getting people in shape now if they're just going to return to their old ways? And each time they go back to where they were, I have no doubt that these people feel less empowered and they feel actually even more disappointed because they're like, oh, you know what, I, I put in all this effort to, you know, get in shape. I did this soup and shake diet for 12 weeks, but here I am, nothing works for me, back at square one. Um, and I can imagine that's really frustrated and uh, frustrating. And yes, anyone could commit for four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. But at the end of the day, if you're not going to change someone's habits and behaviors, they're just going to end up back at square one. And not only that, they kind of get this mindset. It's like the plan B trap, right? You know, if you know that something works and you can easily drop, you know, 13 to 24 pounds in four weeks, why would you change your behaviors? You should be like, okay, I'm going to have a little bit of fun for a while, but I know the soup and shake diet is waiting for me when I need it. And that's just going to be yo-yoing of weight, a binge restrict cycle. It's just going to be something that doesn't work for the long term. And I'm going to exhaust myself talking about this, but at the end of the day, you are treating the symptom and not the root cause by, by prescribing this. And it is as simple as that. And if you want long-term change, then you must, must go to the root cause, which is not fun, which is not easy, which takes time, and deal there with the fundamental reasons why that person is overweight in the first place. Look at their habits, look at their lifestyle, and transform from within and then you're on your way to long-term success. So that is my final thoughts on that subject. And that is today's podcast too. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.